So this morning, Romans 1, 7 through 16, what hindrances produce. This is an exciting book as I'm beginning to study it. And there's a reason why I believe that the Lord wanted us to go down this path, especially as Surrender Church, as we're coming back, it's going to really solidify your faith, our faith together. That's what this book does. Romans has been attributed to some of the greatest revivals of the Protestant faith. I don't know if you knew that or not. St. Augustine, way back in the 300s AD, teaching specifically, it teaches specifically on salvation through grace alone. And St. Augustine, in, this, in his book of Confessions, he writes about reading Romans chapter 13, 13, and 14. And he says that a light flooded his heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And as a result, he became one of the most prominent, influential theologians in the history of the church. Martin Luther, when he read Romans 1.17, it changed his heart. That began the Reformation and the separation from indulgences in the Catholic Church. He wrote that this epistle is the chief work of the New Testament, the purest gospel. It deserves not only to be known word for word by every Christian, but to be the subject of his meditation day by day, the daily bread of the soul. The more time one spends upon it, the more precious it becomes and the better it appears. John Wesley started the Methodist Church when John Wesley thought that he had fallen from salvation as a pastor, he felt as though he had sinned or fallen from salvation in some way. And at his darkest moment, he attended a meeting where someone was reading from Martin Luther's preface to Romans. And Wesley said that he felt strangely warmed and reminded of God's grace. And Wesley then was used to reform England and begin the Methodist Church. The English poet and theologian Samuel Coleridge called it the profoundest book in existence. It has been called the gospel according to Paul. Pretty cool. John Calvin, commenting on Romans, said, If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of scriptures. And S.G. Green said, The epistle to the Romans is the cathedral of the Christian faith. I don't know if you've read through Romans or not, but the truths, the doctrine that's so rich in it, man, that's, we're going to dive deep. And again, it takes uh, books like Galatians and Thessalonians and Colossians, and it just brings them all together about what he's teaching. But those, there's a difference with this book and those books. He's not rebuking the church in those books. I mean, he's rebuking the church in those books, but in this book, he's not. What an encouragement. We'll get to see some of that. Romans 8.28, you all know it. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. A lot of us many times stop at, and we know that God works out all things for good. But we forget for, for, to those who love God to those who are the call according to his purpose, because we believe God is sovereign and everything is his plan and idea for us. He knows. And we can't wrap our head around sometimes what's going on and what he understands and what he has purposed for us. Because sometimes it seems like we're in a situation that he's not even around. 
But we can't forget that everything is planned and he has a purpose. But this scripture, Romans 8.28, even the world knows this scripture. They even quote it in movies. They quote it on shows. This scripture has been called the peak or the mountaintop of the Bible. Because if you were to lay this scripture across the entire Bible, that would be the label of it. We know he works all things good for his purpose to those who love him. We see it throughout the Bible. It's the theme of the Bible. And who would know better than the Apostle Paul that God works out all the things for the good? He lived the Bible. The Bible was his entire life. And as we lay out the course for our day today, what we want to bring into view is Saul now as Paul. I think we forget sometimes the importance of a new life, of a new name, that we're born again. And if we're born again, we have new life. And what a joy it is. We're going to look at the church in Rome. Last week we weren't able to get into the church. But now we're going to look at the church in Rome. It's establishment and it's existence. Because I think sometimes we think Paul established it. But we don't know who established it. And I love that picture. We're going to see Paul's desire to visit. But he's hindered. And what hindrance produced for us. And what hindrances in our lives can produce for us sometimes to bring out beauty from those ashes, as we have heard. And then finally, in verses 16 and 17, Paul's theme of the whole letter laid out for us in just a couple of verses. If we get there, it will provide us assurances of our faith. We're going to dive deeper probably more into that next week. But this week, we want to look at the church in Rome. Now, Saul... Before we get into these verses, Saul as Paul, the importance of a new life. We talked a lot about the Apostle Paul last week. But in these first six verses that we talked about, we discussed how Paul positioned himself in relation to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who he was called to be. He identified Jesus as the Messiah and that he himself, Paul, was a bondservant. His relationship, his new life, his new name was a lasting reminder of his calling and his purpose in, in this life. And that's what we do when we remind ourselves every day of who we are in Christ, who we are in comparison to God. He's in charge. I must decrease and he must increase. So he calls himself a bondservant. And the reason why he calls himself a bondservant that they would understand is because at Ro in Rome at that time, it's said to have over one million people, and one out of every eight or nine was a slave. So they would understand what he's talking about. Paul no longer goes by his surname Saul, undoubtedly named after King Saul. They're both from the tribe of Benjamin. There's rich tradition in that. But he takes on a new name, one that represents his calling. He takes on the Greek name Paul, and it means little. He's a small little guy now. He was big 
in the Hebrew religion, but now he's small in Christianity. And that's where we all need to come. He's no longer going to be called Saul the persecutor, but Paul the apostle. Paul's namesake, King Saul, if you remember with me, the story in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, he was dethroned. God took him off that throne. God allowed him to be on that throne. That's who the people wanted, but God rejected him as king. And the Lord sent Samuel to tell him at that time. In 1 Samuel 15, 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Saul, his name, Paul's namesake, is dethroned. And in a manner of speaking, Saul, now called Paul, is dethroned from his life when he's arrested by Christ. He went from his Hebrew name to the Greek name because it designated his calling. His calling is the apostle to the Gentiles. That's where he was headed. This is where the Lord would tell him to go. And he's dethroned. He's removed as king of his own life, given a new name and given a new nature. And that's what happens when we're born again. And how we need to remember that every day we have to be dethroned from our own lives so that we can live that calling that the Lord has for each one of us. And what a difficult thing to do. Alexander McLaren says, Paul's Christianity meant a radical change in his whole nature. He went out of Jerusalem as a persecutor. He came into Damascus as a Christian. He rode out of Jerusalem hating, loathing, despising Jesus Christ. He groped his way into Damascus broken, bruised, clinging contrite to his feet and clasping his cross as his only hope. He went out proud, self-reliant, pluming himself upon his many prerogatives, his blue blood, his pure descent, his rabbinical knowledge, his pharisaical training, his external religious earnestness, his rigid morality. And he rode into Damascus blind, but seeing in the soul, and discerning that all these things were, as he says in the strong, vehement way, but dung in comparison with winning Christ. Wow, what a picture. So rich these words men in the faith of old had. I love to reference them. I love to read what these men thought about, how they contemplated. They didn't get to just sit on the couch and turn on the TV just to get their mind, you know, settled. They were able to come before the Lord and pray and read. Saul. Saul was involved in murder. That's who he was. And don't you think he remembered that often? Remember what he had done. Remember his former life. And here's the thing. He thought at that time that he was an instrument of God. He thought he was being used by God for God's purposes. This is what happens when we come out of the gate with all judgment and no grace. Judgment and grace have to be taught together. 
all the time. Otherwise, we will get the wrong view. In his former nature, in his old name, he thought he was right with God. And I think there are many people out there that think that they are right with God when they are not. Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things in your name? Depart from me. I never knew you. Because they weren't born again. Not a born again believer in Jesus Christ is what the Bible teaches us. Even as God's instruments today, even as God's instruments, we can think He approves of our methods. Many times we can think He approves of our methods, and we have to be careful. See, God can use worldly instruments, and He can use godly instruments. We see out throughout the whole Bible. Remember Babylon? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 47. Babylon, God's instrument. He used this instrument to bring judgment. And in Isaiah 47, verses 6 and 7, it says, I was angry with my people, God saying, I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly you laid your yoke very heavily, and you said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. Babylon was used to discipline Israel. And what God is telling them now is, you became proud and you thought it was all you. But I was using you as an instrument and you don't recognize that I was using you. You became, he calls them in the verses before, a harlot. You're a prostitute. You turned away from me. Strong words. And he used them to bring judgment, but now they went on on their own. And now he's going to bring judgment on them. We see in Isaiah 47, 10 and 11, For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises, and trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off, and desolation come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. You have said to yourself, it was all me. I did it. There's nobody else beside me. We can live our lives like that. Well, look what I did. Look what I made. Look what I've become. No, the Bible tells us we have nothing but what the Lord gives us. And we need to use that for His glory. See, in their being used of God, they forgot God. And works became their own. But that's a worldly instrument. And you're sitting here thinking to yourself, well, I love the Lord. I try to be obedient and do what He tells me. But even the disciples got swept up in their own pride. We know the stories. They wanted to bring fire down on the Samaritans. You know, they thought they wanted to be set up with Jesus on the throne. Didn't know what they were asking. They wouldn't let the little children come to Jesus. When somebody wanted to meet them, they're like, I don't know. Let me go check with the Lord, you know. Write your name at the door. I'll see if he's available for you. We do that too in this life. 
I mean, we could drive through any drive-through and get the wrong order, and we'll get home and we'll go, oh my gosh, they forgot again. Lord, smite them, you know, because they forgot the French fries. We get worked up with the little things. This is zealotry. Fanatical pursuit of religious or political ideas. Being a zealot. Ruthless, they were ruthless. Sometimes they were ruthless persecutors and furious zealots furnished with such plausible pleas. I like what one writer says. He says, they have always been confident that they did God's service. It is of the very nature of zealotry to make the man of whom it has taken possession believe that the Almighty not only approves, but shares his fierce passions and fancy himself entrusted with a carte blanche to launch the thunders of the Most High God against all in whom is his small peering in human eye can discern ought not approved by his tyrannic conscience. We can have that tyrannic conscience many times if we see somebody doing something and we think, oh, that's not godly. They shouldn't be doing that. We don't know what's going on in the hearts and the minds of other people sometimes. And we have to be careful not to judge them because with what judgment we will judge, it will be judged to us, the Bible says. We might say, well, Jesus showed righteous indignation when he turned the tables over. Yeah, but the problem is we want to turn the tables over for everything. That's the issue with us. We have to remember he was without sin. And how often does the Bible talk about that? In contrast to how often it talks about Jesus' love, his kindness, and his long-suffering. Thank God he is long-suffering with me and with you. Because if he wasn't, man, we should be taken out a long time ago. Our issue is that we want to turn tables over all the time. But I like what Bruce says. He says, such zeal is dangerous, and therefore it's always rare. Sometimes the flame of our zeal is not pure. It's mixed up with the bitter smoke of carnal passions, anger, pride, and self-will. And so we're born again. We have a new nature like the Apostle Paul. And our new nature is in Jesus. A new name in Christ. Remember Colossians 3, 1-3 through 3 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things on earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ. And the character of the new person that we should have, Colossians 3, 12 through 14, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, everything our body and our minds and our hearts are contrary to, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, and you're sitting there with your wife or whoever, and you're saying, what? <laughs> Forgiving? No way. Bearing with them? No way. They need to understand me. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. 
But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, goodwill towards men. The por- this portion of Scripture in Colossians tells us what to put off and what to put on. And they're the evidences of our lives. Do we always get it right? No. But if we could look back a few days and see where we are now, are we growing? Are we developing? That's the process of sanctification. I wonder sometimes if you're like me, sometimes you feel or you find yourself stuck. I've talked about those old trucks that have that granny gear in it, that first gear, granny gear, just real slow. I can't shift. Sometimes you feel like you're in reverse. Even in your walk with Jesus, you can feel like you're in reverse. Like, why am I going this way? I don't sense it. Lord, where are you? But many times it's because I'm living a counterintuitive Christian life. Counterintuitive Christian life? What is that? But thinking that what we're doing is helping the situation, but it's actually making it worse. Maybe I'm worried about something. And I think, well, if I just worry about it enough, it'll correct itself. Or if I worry about it enough, then I'll figure out how to fix it rather than just leaving it at the Lord's feet. It's hard. It's very hard. But we could think that we're helping out when we're not. Sometimes I am focused on what I don't want to become, on what I was so much that I forget to look at who I'm to be like. And it's counterintuitive because if I would just look at him instead of looking at those things, he'll keep me from those things. But I'm, oh, I I don't want to do this. You put all these hedges around and you're watching and you're frantic when the Lord just says, let me do it. Just give it to me. No, no, I can fix it. I can handle it. I can take care of it. And yes, we can. We're brilliant. God has made us brilliant people. But the brilliance really comes in if we would just lay those at his feet. Do you find yourself stuck? I want to focus on Christ. It's like thinking I have to go north before I can go south. Like if you're thinking about the globe. And all you need to do is just turn around and go south. It's counterintuitive Christianity. Just turn around. See, when I go south, I go down and I discover my true name and spiritual identity in Christ. This is where we become little Paul. This is where we become small. This is when I'm dethroned. And then God's love can abound more and more in my life. Those of us who have been born again of the Holy Spirit, we have new names. We have new identities. We don't know what our new names are right now. We're promised in Revelations 2.17 that we will have new names in heaven. And I'm curious to know what my new name will be. I know what people call me here sometimes. But what will your new name be? What will your new nature be? Let me remind you of what your Lord thinks of you, what your name is here, loved. Isn't that the best one? Redeemed, a friend of the king, strong, bold, confident, 
assured, fearless, protected, free, upheld, beautifully and wonderfully made, master crafted, made in God's image, perfected in his eyes through Jesus Christ, sons and daughters, heirs to the kingdom, rich, blessed. To God, you and I are the apple of his eye. That's what he thinks of you. That's how he looks at you. You could think sometimes, man, he's just looking at me in judgment. But if he's looking at you through the eyes of his son, Jesus Christ, he's looking at you in perfection. Oh, praise God for that. The importance of remembering our new lives in Christ will perfect our understanding of our purpose. And then we can move forward. The church in Rome, this is why Paul remembers who he is in Christ and now what he's coming to do. And it says here in verse 7, when he addresses in his greeting and salutation, he says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Albert Barnes claimed that the epistle to the Romans has been regarded as the most difficult portion of the New Testament. And man, it is true. Because only a pastor now only teaching really maybe four books total, I have approached this one very carefully. And man, so good and so challenging. But I think like those men that we read about at the beginning of the message, where their hearts were worn, where they were changed, where they were assured in their faith. Man, if you have not been assured in your faith before, as we go through this book, you're going to be solid. And my prayer and my heart's desire is that no one will ever move you from your faith. Never. That you could always come back to Romans and say, no, God said, this is who I am. God said, all my sins have been forgiven. It's going to make it solid. I can't wait till we get to those chapters. We're going to get through, we're going to come through these chapters, and we'll talk probably more about it next week. But man, the first three or four chapters, oh gosh, we're going to deal with judgment, and we're going to deal with sin, and we're going to feel like I need to come up for air. But after we get past that, oh man, we come up out of the water and just, it's beautiful how the Apostle Paul instructs and what he shares with us. And that's where we get to, but we have to go through these difficult portions first and be reminded of what we were and what we are. I've heard that it taught that Paul always went into an area, I've heard pastors say that he always went into an area, made disciples there, planted a church, and that he taught never to go into another man's area of ministry. And the Apostle Paul does talk about that. But see, Romans seems to teach contrary to those claims. See, this was a church he did not plant, and he eventually did make it there to teach and instruct them, which Therefore, he would be building on another man's foundation if we quote it correctly. But many times we quote, we quote those scriptures incorrectly, and we want to talk a little bit about that. 
See, Paul, Paul's desire was to give them some apostolic leadership, therefore building on something another person had founded, and they needed it. So the date of the writing is somewhere between AD 56 through AD 58. There's differing ideas on that. We believe Paul wrote this letter from Corinth. So here we have a letter written to the Romans some 30 years after Jesus died. Paul, uh, and ascended, but Paul, Paul is believed to be born around the same time as Jesus. So we believe that Paul wrote this letter from Corinth. We see that at chapter 16, he references a couple of people named Gaius and Erastus who were from Corinth. But Phoebe, Phoebe was from the area of Corinth, and we can see that. She was the one who delivered this letter. She's not introduced at the beginning, but at the end. But I believe there's a purpose to show us why that is because it doesn't attribute this book to anybody who planted this church because it's the Lord's church. Paul wrote this letter toward the end of his third missionary journey. And we know at the time he was getting ready to go to Palestine before he goes to Rome. We see that in Romans 15, 25 and 26, where he's telling us he's getting ready to take the collection that he that was gathered to Judah, to, the, to Palestine. But he never made it to Rome on his own as he desired. If we look at the end of Acts, it tells us that he was arrested and he was eventually taken there and set up in front of kings and many people in high places to share the gospel. So he had his own desire. He wanted to go his own way, but God stopped him and moved him to go. Uh, he, he took him there in a way that he never thought he would get there. Sometimes the Lord does that in, in our lives. We want to go one way. He takes us that same place, not the way we wanted, but the way he wants for his plans and his purposes. You think it was fun for Paul to be shipwrecked, to be stoned, to be beaten? We'll talk more about that in verses 16 and 17. Rome. Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire at this time. And it's in the most important city. It was said that Rome was to the world what the heart is to the body, the center of vital circulation. And the church in Rome was comprised of both Jew and Gentile believers. So there were Jews, there were Greeks. But we wonder sometimes, in that place, in Rome, knowing the oppression that was over the Christians and the Jews, why would any Christian want to be at Rome at this time? Man, this is the centrality, this is the heart of the Apostle Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. And sometimes we in those verses that we'll look at later. But sometimes he says that, and we think to ourselves, well, does that mean I'm ashamed of the gospel because I'm not telling somebody? No, that's not what he's talking about at all. See, he went through a lot of things, and he didn't care about his own life. And it didn't matter to him who listened and who didn't listen. It was his desire that people would be saved 
no matter what the cost, and that made him not ashamed to do whatever it took. So how did these people get there? Why would they even be there? I like F.F. Bruce explains it so well. He's a 20th century Scottish biblical scholar who was also a scholar of the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And in his research, he discovered this. There was a Jewish community in Rome as early as the 2nd century B.C., it was considerably augmented in consequence of Pompey's conquest of Judea in 63 BC and his triumph in Rome two years later when many Jewish prisoners of war graced his procession and were later given their freedom. In 59 BC, Cicero makes a reference to the size and influence of the Jewish colony in Rome. In AD 19, the Jews of Rome were expelled from the city by decree of the emperor Tiberius. But in a few years, they were back in as great numbers as ever. In the time of Claudius, which was AD 41 through 54, we have the record of another mass expulsion of Jews in Rome. This expulsion is briefly referred to in Acts 18:2, where Paul, on his arrival in Corinth, probably in the late summer of A.D. 50, is said to have met a Jew named Aquila, lately, uh, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. The date of this edict of expulsion is uncertain, although Orosius may well be right in placing it in A.D. 49. Other reference to it appears in ancient literature, the most interesting of which is a remark by Suetonius in his life of Claudius, that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because they were constantly rioting, rioting at the instigation of a man named Crestus. And this Crestus may conceivably have been a Jewish agitator in Rome at the time, but the way in which Suetonius introduces his name makes it much more likely that the rioting was a sequel to the introduction of Christianity into the Jewish community of the capital. So there were Christians in Rome. History declares it. It's in the his history books. We see it. And according to Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 10, remember the day of pa Pentecost. It tells us that there were visitors from Rome. There were Jews and proselytes. Some believe that it was Peter's words at that time that converted these people and they went back. Remember, they would have been there at that time and they went back to Rome. So some churches attribute it to Peter being the planter of that church, although he, and we can show that he had never been there. Others say it had begun under Paul's ministry as he spread it across the land. But he had never been there. But the fact of the matter is we don't know. And I'm glad about that because it's the Lord's church. It doesn't give us who the founder is. And I think that's important because we live in an age of discovery. We want those tools to view our ancestry. We want to see where we've come from, and those are good things. But we like to pinpoint beginnings. We like to label things. And there's problems with that. There's good things that come out of it, and there's bad things. And we 
It helps us understand where we came from, maybe helps us identify who we are. But in this case, it didn't matter who started this church. What's the purpose anyway of knowing it? I mean, Paul talked about against sectarianism in 1 Corinthians 3, stating that it's Christ's church. It doesn't matter if you're of Apollos, if you're of Paul. It doesn't matter. We're all one in Christ. We're all one church. Paul was a pioneer in his mission to preach where the gospel had never been preached, but on his third missionary journey, he had accomplished all of that. What was he to do now? See, it's not the call of any every minister, of every pastor, to go out to a place where nobody's ever heard of the gospel before. When I decided to step back out, I shared with some folks where my heart's desire was a few different places. And as I shared some about Arizona, and we even got a call from a Calvary Chapel up north to possibly take over, people here in this area, pastor friends of mine, were all about it. Go, it's far. It must be where God's calling you because it's far away from here. But when the Lord closed those doors and he opened up this one, a lot of them were like, no, it can't be the Lord. We have too many places here. But we have a lot of people here. I don't understand it. I don't know. Remember when Paul sent out Titus? Paul sent him out to Crete to set up and plant churches and raise up men to be there to help. So the Lord doesn't always do that. He doesn't, it doesn't mean don't build on another man's foundation. I take that in many different ways. This is not anyone else's foundation. This is the Lord's foundation. It's where he's called me. So not only do we live in an age of ancestry, but identity. Where the church wants to know its ancestry and who it identifies with. I mean, think about Calvary Chapel and who's the first name that pops into your head. And he would be the one to tell you, don't do that. It's dangerous. And it's sad today that the churches have taken on the identity of the servant rather than Christ. And we must be careful. We can, as pastors, be so engrossed with ourselves that we forget the Lord's work in others. The church across the street, Roland Heights Christian Community Church, who owns this building, and I'm not just pushing a plug so they will be, bless us, but who owns this building. They're unaffiliated with anybody. And look what the Lord has done. If you look at them, that church is huge. And they have no affiliation with any other church. Somebody just started teaching and look what the Lord did. But that's Jesus. I'll, I, I, don't, I don't even, I don't recognize the name of the man. I recognize the work of the Lord. This is why this picture to me in Romans is so invigorating. We don't know who planted this church. One writer says this, the fourth century Latin father who is called uh, Ambri, Ambro, whatever, says in the preface to his commentary on this letter that the Romans had, had embraced the faith of Christ, albeit according to the Jewish rite, without seeing any sign of mighty works or any of the apostles. 
It was evidently members of the Christian rank and file who first carried the gospel to Rome and planted it there, probably in the Jewish community of the capital. Just people sitting in the pews, going and talking to somebody, and somebody accepts Christ, and that person starts teaching others, and they plant a church. I mean, whatever it might be, it could be you talking to somebody else, or it could be you called out to go. We don't know. But we can't get our identity with an identity, but it has to be with Christ. With so much oppression against Jews and Christians, though, why be there? Why would you ever want to be there? It's like living in L.A. County. It's like living in California. God had a plan to reach the lost. And sometimes that plan is in the darkest places. Why would I live here? Taxes are high. The highest in the country. Gas prices, I thought they were supposed to go down. What happened? By AD 57, the year in which Paul wrote to the Romans, Christianity may already have begun to make some impact in the higher reaches of Roman society. In that year, Pamponia Gracina, the wife of Aelus Platius, who conquered the province of Britain for the Roman Empire in AD 43, she was tried and acquitted by a domestic court on a charge of embracing a foreign superstition, which was probably Christianity. Amazing. What a beautiful picture. We live in a very liberal state. No question about it. Very contrary to Christianity. And as a result, we want to move away. We want to move to different states. I understand that because I'm one of those who want to move to a different state. But God has closed the door. I already tried it. We went to Arizona. The Lord closed the door. And we can feel like here, like a minority. Don't you feel like a minority sometimes? Who else felt like a minority? 1 Kings 19 tells us, Elisha. Oh, Elisha. I love him. What a great man of God. He actually did call down fire and thunder. He actually did call it down. It actually did happen. But then we see him crying out to God, God, there's nobody else. I'm the only one. I'm the last one. Look at all this filth. And he felt like he was the only one. And what does God tell him? He says, I have been very zealous. He's telling God, I have been very zealous for the Lord in 1 Kings 19.10 of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. God, I'm the only one here. I'm the only one that loves you. I'm the only one doing your work. You ever feel like that? Like I'm the only godly person. Maybe you don't feel like that. Maybe you do sometimes. I'm the only one doing God's work. I'm the only one who loves him. Lord, look at all these people around that don't love you and not serving you. Smite them, take them out. And God tells you, Elijah, hey, you don't know. You have no idea what you're talking about. I have 7,000 people that I have reserved. I have preserved. We don't know. God has a good work 
He wants to do something here. If we're all taken out of here, who's going to witness? That's just the way I see it. Maybe you see it a different way. I don't know. But there was a work to do. These people were making an impact in Rome. It was getting into the highest levels. Paul was encouraged by them, and he wanted to be part of the work. He didn't want to start another one. He just wanted to be part of the work. That's what we want to be here. I was always told every project needs a new tool. You got to go to Lowe's and buy a new tool for that project. I love that because I like tools. That you should have the best tools to do the best job. That's what they were doing here. They were established. He was not building on another man's foundation. He was bringing tools of doctrine, the best tools, so that they can use, so they can be more effective. Because the Apostle Paul had the best tools, and he wanted to share those with other people. This is his heart. This is his purpose. Paul's desire is to visit. In verses 8, we start, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to, who, to you who are in Rome also. Sometimes in our lives, seasons of hindrance produce beautiful outcomes. We have friends who are fighting cancer right now. And they're wondering, they've come to the conclusion, they were wondering why do they have to go through this hindrance in their life. And as we're talking to them, some of them have realized that their unsaved family is watching them. To us, they're crying on our shoulders as believers. In front of their families, they're representing Christ in strength. The Lord's got this. That's the hindrance in their lives of producing a beautiful thing. See, Paul was hindered. We don't know how, but we know why. It was to give us this beautiful work, the book of Romans. Because had he not been hindered, we would have never, probably never seen this book. Those hindrances in our lives, let the Lord take you through them. Because it's going to produce something beautiful. It will. The epistle to the Corinthians and Galatians were different than this one. Those were books of rebuke. They needed to be corrected. But Romans, his purpose for writing was not to correct theology or rebuke ungodly living. See, we're always expecting that. 
oh, come to church. I'm going to learn not what to do, you know, what, what not to do. This is, this is what we're going to do the checklist. Okay, you're living like this. Don't live like that. But no, we come to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be exhorted. That's what it should be like. That's what I'm hoping. But the Roman church was doctrinally sound. How encouraging. And the Apostle Paul wants to go to them, and it was sound. But like all churches, it was in need of rich doctrinal and practical instruction that this letter provides. And I believe we're at a place, knowing my audience, where many of us are at. See, they're doctrinally sound because of what he says in verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. In our sphere of influence, do people know that we're doctrinally sound? Do you have people that call you up and say, hey, I know you're a Christian and I, I know you go to church and I'm going through this thing and I just wanted to ask you, how awesome is that? They know that you're a believer in Christ and that you're doctrinally sound, that they would call you. And he knows that this church is sound. And in verse 11, we read, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. He wants to edify them with apostolic teaching. I just want to reaffirm. I just want to get to you and help you with that assurance in your faith so that in times of trial you don't fail. You can continue. And he wants to preach the gospel with them that he might have some of the reward too. Don't you want that? I want that. Those rewards stored in heaven. Why shouldn't we want that? We should want those rewards. He wants part of that. He sees them doing a good work. He wants part of that. I look over here and I see this parking lot full at the beautiful church. And I'm, I want part of that. Why shouldn't I want that? Not that I want to take from them, but I want to add to them, to the church. Do you understand we're going to be in heaven with these people? You think they're going to have a separate area? No. We're going to be with them, our brothers and sisters, these people over here. We'll all probably be able to talk the same language at that time. <laughs> That'll be good. But not only that, Paul wants to be encouraged and refreshed by them. I think that's so beautiful to be encouraged and refreshed. I don't come here just to encourage and exhort you guys. When I see you guys here, you don't know what that does to me. You don't know how encouraging that is to me. Because the Lord had me prepare and prep. I think of it like a chef at a restaurant. And he's back there and he's got all the recipes. And he's putting the plate together and he puts it in front of me. He just wants to see the smile on the face of the person that he was able to bless. So good. That's what encourages me. Romans 1.12 says, That is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Romans 15.30 Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. In Romans 15, 32, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together 
with you. I have a friend I go and listen to on Thursday nights, a pastor from another church. And I go there to be refreshed, to hear a message. But a good friend of mine always tells me, sit right in the front because it encourages him. And I do. And I don't know if you guys understand what that means to me. Because as I am, as the Lord's giving me words to encourage you, it encourages me on this day when we get together. You may not think it does, but it does so much. Hindrances, hindrances in our lives can produce beautiful outcomes. It did in this case through the Apostle Paul. It produced one of the most beautiful books of Jesus's grace ever written. He did it for us. We're born again with new life, new names, new spirits inside of us. His spirit, the Holy Spirit. And if you have that born again life, the evidences should be from that new name that we've talked about. Guys, we're not going to get through 16 and 17 today. I, I don't want to rush through them because they lay out the foundation for this whole book. And we'll take next week to really dive deep in those assurances of our faith. With all that, let's pray. Father, thank you that we are little, Lord, and we should be small in our sight, but Lord, in your sight, we're we're big, Father. We're loved, we're blessed, we're strengthened, we're encouraged. We're more than conquerors. The world has been defeated. We have nothing to fear. We're, we're uh, beautifully and wonderfully made. And Lord, we thank you that we're part of the body of Christ as we look around this area. And thank you for the view that we have these windows right here where I can see my brothers and sisters gathering at another fellowship and knowing the ones behind us, Father, where we're taking this land for you, Father, this area. And I'm so grateful, Lord, for that, that you have returned this place a hundredfold. I'm so blessed, Lord, that what a miracle you're doing, what a miracle you have done, and that we get to be part of it. Thank you for allowing me to teach not only my family, but my friends. And it encourages me so much. I'm so grateful, so thankful. Lord, work in and through our hearts. And as we go out of these doors, Lord, help us to remember our names are in you. Help us not to be counterintuitive Christians, Father. But allow your Holy Spirit to work as we just look to you and what our lives are to be. May those evidences come flowing out, Lord, uh, like a sweet-smelling aroma into this world. And as we look uh, around, Father, at the hardships, the heartaches, even those things that seem ugly in our neighborhoods and the county we live in and the state that we live in, Lord, we know that you're going to redeem it, Father. And we ask for those people, Lord, who have never accepted you, that they would. 
because that's the only thing that's going to change anything. Not laws, not taxes, nothing else, but just you. So Jesus, thank you so much. We praise you, and it's in your name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.